3: Good and welcome to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick and my co-host Larry Dersham and I have a fabulous show for you tonight. One of the things Larry and I share a passion for is the law, and that includes everything from the local court decisions all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Last week, the Supreme Court announced something they're going to consider that has everybody talking. And of course, I'm talking about abortion. Now the topic that the Supreme Court agreed to hear. This actually comes from a Mississippi case, and it's not about if you can have an abortion, but when, how many weeks in to the pregnancy. Now remember what Roe versus Wade actually holds. It's a case about the constitutionality of when a woman can have an abortion. The line that they established fifty years ago was that viability. Can the child's outside the womb. Now this occurs around 24 weeks of pregnancy. The Mississippi law that is going to be reviewed by the Supreme Court banned most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now that's a difference of about two months. So the the appeal, if you will, the the reason they want the Supreme Court to hear it and the reason they decided to hear it, remember they're not asking the court to overrule the 1973 Roe versus Wade decision. They're simply asking for a pre-viability ruling. In other words, should viability be the benchmark. Now, Larry, I know you've been following this as closely as I have. And you know, we constantly hear on the news, oh, this is about overturning Roe. It's not. But there's also an issue of, well, is it a case that is uh is going to be used to, I suppose, make it easier to have restrictions on abortion in, in all of the different states. But what is the big issue and what do you think the theme is? And and I would also say and I think I know what you're going to say to this one. What's the significance of the Supreme Court agreeing to hear this Mississippi case?
0: I think it's huge, Wendy. They've been uh, waiting for a case like this. And I guess there was a lot of uh, infighting. I don't know if you'd really call it that, but in the Supreme Court. I think that's a good
3: word for it, Larry. Yeah, to even take good up word. this
0: case. But this will probably be the biggest case the Supreme Court has uh, taken uh, on the abortion issue since Planned Parenthood uh, versus Casey, which is a 1992 case. So this is huge, what they're doing. And the viability thing, I, I think is quite interesting, Wendy, because uh, back in 1973, that's the date of the Roe v. Wade decision, we didn't have the science that we have now. Now we have uh, two-dimensional and even uh, three-dimensional imaging, and we can see inside uh, the, the baby's condition, we have a situation where they can actually operate on uh, unborn babies. And really to me is viability a good benchmark because in uh, what I've been reading and, and how I've been thinking lately is like, okay, so, you know, when babies are born, uh, if they can't take care of themselves, uh, are they viable? They can't feed themselves. And what about a person on the other side of life that, that, uh, they can't remember things and can't take care of uh, themselves, are, are they, would they be considered viable under uh, Justice uh, Harry Blackmun's uh, ruling back in Roe v. Wade? So I think things have changed. Technology has moved forward. And we're, we, we know now what we're dealing with, uh, these, these little kids inside uh, the mother's womb. So this is going to be so Well, here's another
3: point. Along the lines of what you're saying, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Idaho, they've codified bans this year on abortion at the onset of a fetal heartbeat. So it's exactly what you're saying is since rope came out, we have other, we have many other ways of detecting life, of gauging life. And and then of course, like you point out, uh there's many people that are alive that uh are challenged in so many different ways. Should viability still be the benchmark? Now because of the infighting you mentioned, I am not predicting that any um rulings of huge significance are going to come out of this. Now of course we know we have to wait till next spring Uh, to get a ruling. However, the fact that this is going to be argued in October, that's exciting. Because, Larry, you and I both know that the questions the justices ask the litigants give us some understanding and sort of a a view, a lens with which we can view what they're thinking. What are they going to do? What are the issues they see are important? But regardless of what ends up happening, the pure significance of the Supreme Court deciding to take this case is an enormous step. And you might, I mean, it's probably true that the reason this conservative majority decided to do what they did, notwithstanding, uh, well, let's just say the contentiousness (laughs) surrounding that decision is, remember this is a court, believe it or not, it's hard to think of it this way, one third of the current court was appointed and confirmed by former President Trump.
0: That's right, and uh, I think there's Currently, what six? So you would call them, I guess, conservative justices, and three that would be on the liberal side. So that's going to be really interesting. And I'm just wondering if that whole idea of court packing that was floated a couple weeks ago is still in the mix. If they don't like uh, no, decisions.
3: You know, it's true, but despite all of the um, the very loud voices that are sounding off on both sides of this issue regarding the Supreme Court deciding this case, the court itself signaled, the Supreme Court signaled that in looking at this Mississippi case, it will take a very narrow approach. I mean, it declined to address Casey, which you point out requires strict scrutiny of abortion restrictions. They're only looking for, at the question of constitutionality, for any pre- viability restrictions. Now, what you're saying is an interesting point. Is it time to re-examine what viability means? Well, if it does mean uh, that you're able to survive outside the womb, maybe that line wouldn't move as much as what you're saying is it sure looks like it, there may be a viability option even earlier. I don't know that yet. And you can imagine a case that went to this, there'd be doctors and experts on both sides. That would be Fascinating, and there's nothing to say we're not going there. But I think that the people that are worried or that are um, are objecting to the Supreme Court hearing this to begin with, maybe don't necessarily believe. At least if they've read the briefing and they know what's at issue, they don't necessarily believe this is going to overturn "quote unquote" Roe. But they probably see it more as a, an, an insidious encroachment upon the rights that women currently have. And when remember, Larry, this case isn't about if, but when when can you get an abortion legally?
0: Exactly. And again, they're finding so much more on the scientific side, When They say that they can detect a heartbeat now in six weeks. That's right. In seven and a half weeks, they can, uh, pain receptors form in the uh, the fetus or the unborn baby. So they can feel pain. And they have a fully functioning heart at 15 weeks, just fully functioning, pumping blood and everything. So again, as science... uh, reveals more and more about life in the womb, this viability uh, standard, our our, our
3: pointer, is gonna be changing, I believe. You know, and it's interesting that you you bring these things up because everybody, it doesn't matter your politics or whether you're conservative or liberal, everyone loves children. And so when you're thinking about, as you're pointing out, learning more about the development in the womb. You remember, Remember Ben Carson, when he was running for president, when in one of the debates, he said, I'm the only one on stage who's operated in utero. Yes. So he actually wow. performed one of those operations you're talking about. So, you know, as more people learn more about when life is developing, you know, people change their opinions, you know, at, at least with respect to when somebody should be able to get an abortion under current law. They change their opinions all the time. But it's also interesting to note that it is true that we have a conservative majority. But remember the confirmation hearings for all three President Trump appointees. They were grilled. Yes. On their views on abortion, yes, and they had to be very forthcoming about the fact that they're pro life, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't follow the law. I mean, they're judges, they have to follow the law, so all of them, when they were peppered with questions, were very unwaveringly clear that, regardless of their personal opinions, that if a case regarding Roe were to come before them, they would follow the law. Now, court packing almost seems to suggest that maybe there's an assumption that they think they could, but they won't. And I mean, is that the reason that we're now sort of reviving that argument? I don't even really really wanna say it's an argument. I mean, even President Biden wasn't in favor of court packing. So it doesn't really have that much support, but maybe the timing is right to talk about it again, uh, according to some people that are now bringing it up.
0: Right, I think this is so interesting, Wendy. Justice Harry Blackmun, way back in 1973, he wrote the majority opinion of Roe v. Wade. And in his own words, uh, he said, If this suggestion of fetal personhood is established, the appellant's case, of course, collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the 14th Amendment. And I just think it's almost like we're arguing when does a, a preborn child become a person. And that is so key. And I think it is moving. I think it's shifted since 73. And I am personally glad that they're revisiting this. I think it needs to look, uh, be looked at again. 80% of Americans right now reject abortion after the first three months. So they reject late-term abortions. There's been over 500 pro-life bills just this year introduced. So I think the tide is, in my opinion, hopefully uh, shifting in favor of life, pro-life.
3: You know, it's funny, you talk about pre-born. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, it's it's one of those issues that um, is really front and center. Everybody's talking about it. And Larry, you and I are gonna continue to talk about it. But because we need to take a short commercial break, do not touch that dial. When we return, you're going to meet one of a one of the most popular senators in the California legislature who will give us a frontline view of all the particular and the cultural battles currently being fought in Sacramento. We will be back in a flash. You are listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. All right. So I teased this up on the first half. We have a very famous person with us the second half, a very popular California state senator. But not just that, somebody that is as interesting personally as he is intelligent professionally. Larry, who do we have on the line?
0: Uh, Yes, Wendy. I'd like to uh, introduce to the listening audience uh, Senator Brian Jones. I'd like to uh, welcome him to the program. He's the California state senator. He was elected to represent the 38th Senate District in 2018, which is a large part of San Diego County, stretching roughly from Anza Borrego Desert on the east to the cities of Escondido and San Marcos on the west, to Palomar Mountain area in the north, and all the way down to the cities of Santee and El Cajon in the south. Uh, both uh, Before that, he served as a California Assembly uh, representing. California's 77th Assembly District from 2010 to 2012, and again from 2012 to 2016, where he represented California's 71st Assembly District. Welcome to the
3: program, Senator Jones.
2: Thank you, Wendy and Larry. I appreciate you guys having me on.
3: Now, I get to ask you about the fun stuff, Brian. So I understand you are an avid outdoor fan. You like mountain biking, uh, adventure motorcycling I like those two words together hunting right. fishing exploring state parts one thing that's near and dear to my heart because I'm also a Christian minister is the fact that you were at one time an associate pastor and I love that and I was wondering as I was reading through your illustrious bio Larry just went through some of it what led you from the pulpit to politics
2: <laughs> well <laughs> the um it was a, couple, a combination of a couple of things the church that i was attending my wife and i were attending at the time was sunrise community church in santee and they that's currently in santee they were moving from spring valley to santee and we lived in santee and you know i never heard of this program called a conditional use permit that a church has to get permission from the city fathers uh, or you know or mothers and leaders that uh to be to move into a city so we went through that process fortunately the the church was successful but as a result of that uh, i got a taste for politics ran for city council in 2002 and i served on the council from 2002 to 2010 and then the assembly from 10 to 16 and now the senate uh from 17 well basically 2018
0: to now uh, right uh senator jones I know you recently sponsored an act. It was called the Religion is Essential Act. You sponsored that in the Senate. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think it's a wonderful thing to have, uh, but you could give us a background on that.
2: Well, Larry and Wendy, first of all, um, I believe that the bill should have been completely unnecessary because the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution protects the freedom of religion and freedom of assembly, and that should have been enough. Uh, to protect churches during the pandemic from government overreach, but unfortunately, the state uh, under Governor Governor Newsom's leadership, uh, as you all know, and I'm sure most of your listeners, closed down churches, told them they had to close, and they didn't really give them any um, sensible parameters in which they could reopen. Now they gave businesses uh, parameters in which they could reopen. They gave lot, you know. Uh, the medical industry parameters in which they could reopen, but they just refused to accept that religion and uh, faith expression is essential. So basically, while the, the cases were working their way through court, um, I realized we needed to have some legislation to basically constrain the governor and fu- and future governors from closing down churches. So it did a couple of things. Number one, it, it proclaimed that church, that church services, religion ex- expression is essential, just like a big, any of the retail stores that were being opened, um, churches had to be allowed to be open. The bill was sponsored by California Family Council, the Capital Resource Institute, the Judeo-Christian Caucus, and Real Impact. And it was also supported by the Alliance Defending Freedom, which were a big help in writing the bills and, and you know, being a witnesses in support. Uh, Pastor Jack Hibbs from Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, and the church supported it. And, of course, Tran Reese with the Salt and Light Council were major supporters of the bill as well. The the other thing they kind of put teeth into it is if if a, if a government agency, either at the state level or the local level, county or city, uh council uh closed a church inappropriately and gave the church the ability to sue for damages uh, which is unique and again shouldn't be necessary but we just felt like the governments in california had gone too far and we needed to do something to constrain them
3: you know brian one of the other things you've really done a, a very good job at since the covid pandemic began is helping families helping families get through, get their unemployment claims resolved, helping small businesses. I mean, when you ran for office, you probably didn't envision that being <laughs> such a huge part of your, of your platform, yet you stepped up. And it seems like as we now are reopening, um, we are still trying to do some of the same things now that people are getting their jobs back. What is the right. latest on how we're, and, and you particularly, are still doing exactly that, helping families get back on their feet?
2: Well, believe it or not, Wendy and Larry, there's still a backlog of um, EDD unemployment benefits that people still have not received for months. You know, they, you know, maybe somebody got laid off in January or February, and they still haven't been able to get EDD to process their applications. So we're still, even though people are going back to work, we're still processing those applications and making them, um, you know, making EDD respond to them and get people signed up on their benefits. I would encourage any of your listeners, even if they've gone back to work but had a period of unemployment, to not give up on that. And if they're in my district, reach out to my office. Uh, we'll certainly help them. If they're in one of the other Senate districts, reach out to their senator first. But if they can't get, I'm you know, my I'm understanding is many of the Assembly members and senators aren't answering their phones and aren't holding edd accountable like we are then they can reach out to me but if they're not in my district they need to reach out to their their representatives first but we'll take care of them if they can't get any help there
0: senator i understand a lot of people are leaving california because of some of the bad policies of the controlling uh democratic party in sacramento would you consider running for governor by any chance (laughs) well not this
2: time not this time Larry. Uh, i think we've already got too many republicans in the field already on this one. And we've got to be smart about it. That's, you know, unfortunately in in many of these situations, Republicans get ahead of themselves and, um, we, we've got to, you know, unite behind one. If we want to replace Nick Gavin Newsom, we've got to unite behind one, uh, candidate and, you know, I guess in the next couple of months, hopefully we'll figure out who that is, but we, we can't be splitting the vote or Newsom will survive.
0: Right. Now, you also won some big victories against the state that are trying to put too many sexually violent predators in the San Diego County, particularly the East County. What's behind that and how's that going? I know you won a victory there.
2: Well, we've won two victories, actually. Uh, the state hospitals wanted to place two different sexually violent predators. And what's important for your listeners to understand, when, when somebody is... is uh tagged as a sexually violent predator or i guess prosecuted as a sexual that's a whole higher level of um evil than than is normal in a sexual harassment type case these are very bad people that have done very bad cruel things evil cruel things to another human being and why you know my first complaint is why are they being allowed out of jail in the first place? Um, you know, why, do, why are they even offered parole? I don't think they ought to be. Uh, but, you know, that's how our justice system in California is set up right now. So the state hospitals was going to put two of these guys in one house in the middle of a neighborhood uh, just outside of Mount Helix, which is a completely inappropriate uh, location for these. And the, the state uses an organization called Liberty Health to kind of be able to hide behind a contractor so the state doesn't look like it's participating in the process. And then, you know, they hide this from the county as well. And they, they're they able to put these guys pr- practically wherever they want. Why East County has gotten the brunt of this, I'm not sure, but I'm going to continue to fight this. We we were able to convince both of the judges to not put these guys out here in East County. And uh, I've introduced... but. I've introduced legislation to prevent it from happening again
3: yeah you know um so sexually violent predator proceedings just so our listeners know those are civil civil commitment proceedings that occur after somebody has done the crime done their time and then it's very a uh, very controversial um, jury trial actually that goes on regarding whether or not somebody is classified as a sexually violent predator if the jury says yes um, they stay in the state hospital if they say no that's what we're talking about is is placement but I got to say Brian as I'm looking through all of the issues that you are involved in. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about it because there are so many different things. You know, is, is there like one goal you would say that sort of is a, a defining goal for you in 2021?
2: Well, my you know, you know know my main purpose in serving in elected office like this is to represent my constituents uh, in the government and if, when necessary against the government. Too many elected officials, when they get elected, they become part of the bureaucracy. They become, they feel like they're part of the government and they're, you know, they advocate for the, and we saw that a lot with the pandemic and the government's response to, uh, how they handled it. I, my position was I'm protecting my constituents from the government overreacting and overreaching. And I think we need more elected officials that have that perspective.
3: I think that's a great place to end it. We're up against the clock. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Our listeners, no doubt, learned a lot from you. And keep up the energy, my friend. And that's probably how you do everything you you Brian. You really do it all. You have been listening.
2: listeners know they can follow me on social media, all the social media platforms at SEN Brian Jones.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank Thank you to our listeners for joining us. Have a wonderful, safe weekend. And please join us next week for more of Today with Dr. Wendy, Headlines with the Silver Lining.